You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. My name is Matt Luloy, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Uh, And if we've not met before, uh, it's great to um, at least uh, know that we have many of you tuning in from your homes as you're able. We, of course, would prefer to be here with you, and I would love the opportunity at some point, hopefully in the not-so-distant future, um, to to greet you in person, uh, to get to to meet you and to know you, particularly those of you who are new with us. Uh, And church family, uh, we we love you. um, We miss you. Uh, really longing for that day that we can gather again and uh, hopeful with uh, the announcement uh, this last Friday that Cumberland County will move to the yellow phase this coming Friday, uh, that sometime in the coming weeks we'll be able to do physical gatherings of some form. Uh, so stay tuned to the weekly email, to the website uh, for the latest updates about that. We're going to be uh, continuing to meet and talk and pray together uh, as elders and leaders of our church about um, the plans and uh, what's wise and what's caring and, and all the different considerations that we have there. So. If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in two different passages today. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, and we're going to be in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, If you've downloaded the uh, Living Room Liturgy from our website, you can follow along there. It'll be on the screen uh, here as well uh, in just a little while. Uh, But as Mallory mentioned a little while ago, this morning we are uh, continuing our series called The Mission of God's People. Uh, As followers of Jesus Christ, as the church... Uh, What are we called to do and to be in the world? And we're going to see, we've already begun seeing in this series, that because the scope of God's mission is so large, likewise, so is the scope of of our mission, the mission of God's people. This morning, we're going to see that part of that mission uh, is to attract others to God, to live in such a distinct, uh, such a compelling and attractive way that people will want to know why. Uh, that people will want to know the source uh, and the motivation for, for the character, for the quality of our lives. That people ultimately, through that, will be compelled to perceive the worth and the beauty and the glory and the goodness of the one true God and become followers of Jesus Christ themselves. So if you're a Christian this morning, uh, my hope for you is that you would today, during these moments, be renewed in your passion, be renewed in your motivation Uh, to live in such a way that attracts other people to God. And if you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian, you're exploring Christianity, uh, my hope for you is that even these few moments that we have together today, and even more than that, that the quality of the lives of the Christians that you know and maybe the Christians that you interact with would be part of what really compels you to put your faith in Jesus yourself. Before I read uh, our two passages for this morning, uh, let me pray for us as we begin our time. If you'd pray with me. Oh Lord, you have given us your word as a light to shine upon our path. Help us now to meditate on your word, to follow its teaching, that we might find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, For each of the sermons in this series, we're considering really a a biblical theme. Uh, Not so much one book of the Bible or one text, but but themes that are woven throughout Scripture. Uh, Two key Scripture passages for us to consider today. One is from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, and the other from Matthew chapter 5, 
uh, verses 14 through 16. So I invite you now from wherever you are to listen uh, with open ears to this book that we love. First from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen on you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And if you would then either flip over or follow along the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. So the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. To attract others to God really has always been part of the mission of God's people. If we had the time to do a full biblical survey this morning, we would see this all the way through. Uh, From the time that God chose Abraham, the time that he established a people for himself, he set them apart to bless them and to use them to draw even more people to himself. And so this morning we have, just as a sampling, uh, one text from the Old Testament and one from the new. We have one text from Isaiah that actually looks forward to and anticipates the, 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 the coming of Jesus into the world. If you've been around the church, uh, especially during the Advent and Christmas season, this verse might sound familiar to you. We use it often in our celebration of Advent, Jesus the light coming into the world. And then we have another text from the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus' own words to his followers, calling them to continue on this mission of God. In both of these passages, we see this. We see that attracting people to God requires three things. A distinct identity, visibility, and activity. A distinct identity, visibility, and activity. So first, a distinct identity. Both Isaiah chapter 60 and Matthew chapter 5 use this imagery of light and darkness. And in both... The assumption is that because of sin, uh, because of humanity's rebellion against God, the world and people who live in the world are immersed in darkness, covered in thick darkness, to use the prophet Isaiah's words. So one way to describe and to depict God's redemptive mission is that God is bringing light into the darkness, God is a bringer of light into darkness. He brings salvation and rescue and restoration to what sin seeks to corrupt and destroy. God himself is the light. He is the one who saves and redeems. And so in Isaiah 60, the prophet writes, Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But why is that? Because right after that in verse 2, the Lord himself has risen Upon you. And ultimately, as I just alluded to a moment ago, this is fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God the Son took on flesh, 
And if we were to read the first chapter of John's gospel, that chapter, the beginning of it especially, is all about Jesus as the light who has come into the world to shine in the darkness, to push back what is dark in the world. And Jesus himself then in John chapter 8 says to all who would listen to him, I am the light of the world. And it's really important that we begin here because it's not that you and I as God's people inherently have light. Uh, Before we are ever participants in God's mission, we are first the desperate recipients of it. Before we are ever part of bringing light, we ourselves are in darkness. But as we receive light, as God shines upon us, as God saves us through the work of Jesus, we become lampposts, we become beacons. He makes us light so that we might be his means of continuing to push back and to pierce the darkness. And so Jesus does say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. But here in Matthew 5, he's saying what? You are the light of the world. In union with Christ, we actually share this identity with him. He's able to say both, I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. An author and scholar named Christopher Wright, who we're greatly indebted to for this this entire sermon series, uh, puts it this way. He says, God's people are to shine with the light of God, to live out the attractiveness of God's saving light in lives that are being transformed in the present. And he goes on to say this, God has brought the light, we are to do the shining. God has brought the light, we are to do the shining. In order to attract anyone to God then, we must receive God's light and we must then live as light in the darkness, which is a distinct identity. It's a distinct identity. Now let's be honest about this. Uh, The history of the church is riddled with self-righteousness and superiority complexes and a a really arrogant us-versus-them mentality. Some of us uh, have been really wounded by that, perhaps. Some of us, no doubt, have participated in that. But in God's word, in spite of all of the the overreaching of this and the abuses of this and the arrogance, we need to see that there is an us and a them. There is a distinction. There is light and there is darkness. And these two texts highlight that. We don't read in these texts that the light is imparted from God directly to all people. What we read here is that the light is imparted to some. The Lord will arise upon you, his people, Isaiah says, and nations who are others will come to that light. Jesus says, you, my followers, are the light of the world, so that they, other people, might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our posture, how we steward this distinct identity, is so important. We can never forget that before we are sent to live as light in the world, the light of the world, Jesus Christ had to pierce our own thick darkness. That we, the us, the people of God, were once them. Such were some of you, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And really, the only reason he says some of you there is because he's talking about specific types of darkness. In other places, he says it's actually all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He could just as well write, such were all of you until Christ intervened and brought light into your darkness. 
And the millisecond that we forget that, that is the moment, that is the point at which self-righteousness and arrogance and an unattractive, utterly non-compelling life begins. So let us carry this distinction humbly and graciously. But let us carry the distinction. Let us carry the distinction. The way that God uses us to attract other people to himself is precisely because of a perceivable difference in our lives, uh, in our worship, in our ethics, in our hope, in our joy, in our love. Our lives as God's people are meant to invite curiosity and comparison. And that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought because so much of the comparing that you and I do in our lives is unhealthy and unhelpful. Right? We constantly weigh ourselves against other people, be that from social media, just the interactions we have with people or our neighbors and the, the work and projects they're doing on their home that maybe we think we should be doing now too. So much comparison is unhealthy. But think about this. We as the people of God, we want people living in darkness to compare We want them to find the light appealing, and we want them to find the darkness thoroughly unsatisfying. That's what compels the nations to come, the fact that there's actually a difference. That's what compels the people to see something and to glorify God. John Stott once wrote, Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. To conform to the prevailing culture instead of of developing a Christian counterculture. And as God's people in this moment, in this time and place, we too will feel pressure, as John Stott puts it, to conform to the prevailing culture. We'll feel that in, in any number of ways. One of the places that we've seen this really play out in the last several decades is the pressure that has been applied to churches to abandon its historic and orthodox teachings on marriage and gender and sexuality and to become fully open and fully affirming of LGBTQ practices and lifestyles. Now, that that debate, culturally speaking, societally speaking, that's already been had. Most of the world has already moved on from that discussion. But inside the church, there's immense pressure remaining. And we see churches and we see denominations splitting over this topic and and in in so doing, either ignoring the Bible or significant parts of it or uh, doing interpretive gymnastics to make it teach something that it doesn't, something that it never taught ever for the hundreds and hundreds of years in the history of the church up until the last decade or two. Now, God forgive us for our lack of love and compassion and grace for lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people. God have mercy on us, the church, for the ways in which we have singled people out or treated people less than human anywhere along the way. But for the sake of light shining in the darkness, for the life and hope of the world, we cannot capitulate to the pressure of prevailing culture. And the same thing is true when prevailing culture tries to to make Jesus fit nicely into one political party or where our society's addiction to comfort and avoidance of suffering pressures the church to propagate a, a costless Christianity 
what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once called a cheap grace, which requires no self-denial and no, no ongoing commitment to transformation. In our own practice, in our own ethics, we must retain the distinct identity we've been given through the finished work of Jesus. And you will, for one or many of these views, you will be hated for these views. You will be written off as backward and bigoted or worse. And you will be unattractive simply because of these views to many people for refusing to capitulate. But but attracting people to God means nothing if there's no distinction. It especially means nothing if we're only attracting people to a different form of darkness and not the actual light. Jesus will go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 that if the light in you be darkness, how great the darkness. It does ourselves, it does others no good if all that we're attracting them to is just another form of darkness. As light in the darkness, may God grant us patience and endurance to hold the line, and to hold the line with a long view, with a long view. Pursue grace and compassion and love for real people, but cling to truth. Cling to truth. That way, others can find their way back to the solid rock of Christ when the sand beneath them sinks. Second, attracting people to God also requires visibility. Not only a distinct identity, but visibility. A distinct identity actually isn't all that helpful, particularly in the mission of God, unless it's visible. It doesn't help others unless they can actually observe it. Jesus says in Matthew 5 here, A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 says simply, The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And it really helps if we know the geography and the history of that part of the world uh, to which Isaiah was was writing. Uh, With their center of life and worship in Jerusalem, the Israelites were in the middle of this land bridge which connects three continents. Europe and Africa and Asia are all connected in that part of the world, in that land bridge. So the Israelites were not a cult that like bought a ranch somewhere and kind of just did their thing off separately from the rest of the world. For the majority of recorded human history, right up to this present day, there is no more hotly contested real estate than this. And God then saved his people from slavery in Egypt, and he sent them into the middle of the intersection of the known world. He sent them right into the middle of the intersection of the known world. They were meant to be seen. They were meant to be observed. Similarly, When Jesus prays for his disciples in the upper room, right before his betrayal and his his passion, his going to the cross, he prays that they would be distinct, that they would remain distinctly his followers, but also that they would remain in the world. And so separateness for God's people is always a separation of identity and ethic. It's never a separation of proximity. Separateness is always about identity and ethic and never about proximity. Light is of no use under a basket. Light is of use when you put it up high, when you put it up on a stand so that the whole house can use it and see it. On a hill, it's useful so that from miles around, by the light of that city, people can find their way home. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I referenced just a moment ago, German pastor, theologian who died under Hitler's regime, uh, he once wrote, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. A community of Jesus which uh, seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Those are blunt words, but he's right. There is no such thing as a private faith in Jesus. There's personal faith. We own our, our, our commitment to Christ personally, but there is no such thing as a private faith, something we compartmentalize to a corner of our lives and no one else is allowed to, to see that or hear of that. Now, as I think about you, uh, the people of Liberty Church, I think nearly all of you would agree with this. At the same time, the temptation and the pressure for us to become private and invisible is always lurking and even growing at times. It's hard to carry a distinct identity and be visible at the same time. That's hard work. It's a costly and sacrificial way to live. So while I don't think many of us would ever intentionally take flight into the invisible, to use Bonhoeffer's words, I do think that there's a real possibility that we can slowly and subtly slide into a private, invisible kind of life. We only have so much time and capacity. And so the the school or the educational approach that you choose, the job that you hold, Uh, the businesses that you frequent, the neighborhood you live in, the hobbies you pursue, the friends that you make. Collectively, if you're only ever surrounded by other Christians in those environments, if you're only ever having meaningful connections and meaningful conversations with other Christians, then functionally, we've really become invisible, even though we maybe never meant to. And as I offer some of those examples, please, please hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. There are, there are good and valid reasons to choose the school and the educational method and, and approach that you do. Uh, the, the work where you work and the, the neighborhood where you live. Uh, there are good and valid reasons to give business to the companies that you do business with and socialize with the people you socialize with. And it's not that we should always pick the thing that will automatically give us the most interaction with people who don't follow Jesus. There are reasons to not do that at times. But we should make some of these decisions for exactly that reason. Exactly so that our lives intersect other people's in meaningful ways. Otherwise, we'll wake up one day and we'll realize somewhere along the way we've rejected our calling. That we've actually removed ourselves from all significant opportunities to be light in the darkness, that our light is now under a basket and we've become private and invisible. For some of you, maybe that moment, maybe that day is today. Maybe in this moment, you're waking up to how that's been playing out in your life subtly and now it's just like, wow, how did I end up here? Life is is unbelievably dynamic and you don't need me to tell you that. You know that. Always in flux. And because of that, we need to regularly reconsider and reevaluate what it looks like for us to be visible. Where are those places that we can be meaningfully involved and present and connected with other people who at present uh, do not know and follow Jesus? We want people in darkness to see the light of Christ. Yes? We want the world to know the one true God. 
The visibility, the presence, the light of God's distinct and transformed people is the primary means that he uses to attract others to himself. So for the sake of others knowing Jesus, where do you need to pursue being more visible right now? Where do you need to pursue being more visible than you are at this moment? You no doubt will have to say no to some other and good things in order to pursue that. But wrestle with these decisions. Uh, Invite other people, and particularly people who know you and know your blind spots, to speak into that. And let us encourage and challenge and support each other in community so that we collectively are not only distinct in our identity and our ethics, but we're present and visible in this world that God loves and made. Third, and finally, attracting people to God requires activity. Activity. Ultimately, and I hope you've already heard this, God must draw other people to himself. We do not have the power to do that. We heard it in our scripture reading this morning. We are jars of clay so that the surpassing power is always belonging to Jesus Christ himself and not us. But we are meant to own our role as light in the darkness. We are meant to actively seek to attract people to God. As Jesus says in Matthew 5 to his disciples, to his followers, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works is a a sort of summary term that we see not only used by Jesus but throughout uh, the scriptures and particularly the New Testament. Uh, It refers to uh, any and all actions that display our response to the good news of the gospel. So as Christians, we are not saved by our efforts, we are not saved by our good works, but then as we become Jesus' followers by trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, we respond to what he's done with acts of love and service and mercy and generosity. Sometimes we do these good works in secret, intentionally so that no one else knows. Because we're not doing these things for our recognition and praise. We're doing these things always, we're meant to be doing these things, in gratitude to God, in worship of God. In Matthew chapter 6, actually just a few verses after the ones we're reading today, Jesus says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give in secret. But in the same Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, where we are today, he says, let your light shine so that others will see. And it sounds like a contradiction, but it's in the same sermon, the same teaching of Jesus, so somehow that fit together in his own mind, in his own own call to his disciples. And I think the, the, the way that that fleshes out is this. If you're doing something to gain praise and recognition for yourself, stop. Stop. Do it secretly. Let God be the one who sees that. Let God be the one who acknowledges and rewards you for being faithful in those good works. But as we live out our distinct identity, as we pursue visibility, some of our good works should be observable. They should be on display. And again, not so that people look at us and think, wow, those people are amazing, but verse 16 of Matthew 5, that others might give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Isaiah 60 simply begins with a two-word summons. Arise, shine. In these verses, Isaiah is not spelling out what that means specifically, 
But if we back up two chapters to Isaiah 58, he does. He says in Isaiah 58, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then he says in verse 8, summarizing all of that, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. So Isaiah essentially is saying the same thing that Jesus does centuries later. Good works, acts of faithful response to God's salvation, and particularly acts of love, care, and mercy, and justice for the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, the poor, these are the active things that we can do to let the light of Christ shine through us to make the way of God, to make God himself appealing and compelling to people who at present remain in darkness. So I'm continuing to rejoice in the way that so many of you jumped in with the Easter outreach efforts this year. And it was great to hear from Dana about her and the Kenny family's pursuit of that. There have been many more of you who have done various efforts, and we'll hear a couple of those stories in weeks to come. But it was beyond encouraging to hear how many of you dreamed up creative and intentional ways to bless people in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Let Easter outreach for us never become a box that we check once a year. Uh, Let it always be a moment that we come together as a community that it catalyzes us living a lifestyle of blessing other people, of serving other people in the name of Jesus. I loved a couple weeks back when Pastor John was preaching uh, his reference of the movie in, uh, to the movie Inception. If you didn't listen to that sermon for a couple weeks ago, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, as the main characters in the movie Inception go deeper into dreams and dream worlds, they carry, as John pointed out, totems. Uh, these objects which would uh, tell them, which would remind them which world is the actual world, which one's the real one. And as Pastor John said, for the people of God, the scriptures are our totem. They are the story of God. They are the true story of the world. Yes and amen. But what's more, and maybe this will envision you to step into this in a renewed way today. What's more, to people who are immersed in thick darkness, to people who at this moment are not even willing to pick up a Bible and read the true story of the world, we are the totem. Your life is the totem. Redeemed by Jesus, the lives of God's people in every generation point to the truest reality. We are meant to be the most real and redemptive, loving and truth-telling community that the world knows. To lose track, and John said this a couple weeks ago, to lose track of reality is deadly. To remain in darkness is deadly, eternally so. But you are the light of the world, sent to pierce the darkness, sent to point the way to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. So men and women, let us step into that opportunity and responsibility. And let us take heart. Because God is God, and because we are not, your life will point to his worth. When you and I live out our distinct identity, when we are visible, when we are actively seeking to attract people to God, it displays God's worth, his transforming power, and his love and his kindness to others. 
It compels other people to consider and to compare. It compels them, by the grace of God, to seek the light of Christ and to become his followers themselves. But, thanks be to God, even when we are not attractive, when we are downright ugly and unattractive because God knows certainly we are sometimes and we fail and fall short, this too displays God's beauty and worth. Because in his kindness, in his grace, he does not abandon his people when they become unattractive and ugly. He does not abandon his redemptive mission in the world and start over. He gives more grace. Our sins, they are many. As we sang, his mercy is more. So in both your active efforts and in spite of your failures, your life, friends, is God's totem in the world. So let your light shine before others. Let the world observe your life and your priorities, your hope in sorrow, the foundation of your joy. Let the world ask why you feed the hungry and house the homeless and serve the poor and the oppressed. It is not because you and I are in any way superior. The supremacy solely belongs to Jesus The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, our Lord, is why we say to other people, look at my life. Look at my life, not because I'm any better than you, but because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. So church, arise and shine. In Christ, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. May others see his glory upon us and be compelled to follow Jesus themselves. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. O Lord, our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Grant that as we joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, that we might also gratefully share it with others and ever give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. And we pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.